I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 56 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week designed one of the all-time great album covers, and he also performed on more classic songs than you realize. Klaus Vormann. Vormann was a young commercial artist when he met the Beatles during their residency in his hometown of Hamburg, Germany. He remained friends with the band and shared a London flat with George Harrison and Ringo Starr for a while. He also learned to play bass and was in a group called Patty, Klaus, and Gibson before joining Manfred Mann in 1966. It was also in 1966 that John Lennon approached Vorman about creating the cover art for the Beatles' new album. The band's music was taking a profound leap forward, and they wanted the cover to reflect this explosion of artistry. So, no pressure, Vorman responded with line drawings of the four band members and a collage of photos woven through their flowing hair. It was a striking cover for an album that's now considered one of the best of all time, Revolver. That album is now receiving the Super Deluxe box treatment, with five CD and four LP plus seven-inch single versions available October 28th. The package includes a hardcover book that features illustrations from Vorman's graphic novel, Birth of an Icon, about the creation of the Revolver cover. What was Vorman's reaction when the band brought him into the studio so he could hear the album's songs? Did he know the album's title when he began work? Did he always intend to make the cover black and white? Was there any pushback to have it in color? He won a Grammy Award for his work and designed the cover for Bee Gees first soon afterward. Was he overwhelmed with offers to create more album art? Vorman's primary work remained as a musician. That's his flute, bass, and backing vocals on Manfred Mann's hit version of Bob Dylan's The Mighty Quinn. Also became John Lennon's go-to bassist outside the Beatles. Vorman plays bass on the Plastic Ono Band's live piece in Toronto album, as well as the singles Cold Turkey and Instant Karma. On the latter, Vorman also plays electric piano and sings. Lennon's first and best two solo albums, John Lennon, Plastic Ono Band, and Imagine, also feature Vorman on bass. Did Vorman know Imagine was a timeless song the first time he heard it? Did he think How Do You Sleep, Lennon's attack song against Paul McCartney, was too mean? Vorman played on George Harrison's epic solo debut, All Things Must Pass, as well. Like those first two Lennon albums, All Things Must Pass was co-produced by Phil Spector. How did the Harrison and Lennon sessions differ? Was Spector or Harrison responsible for adding so many layers to the All Things Must Pass songs? On Ringo Starr's 1973 album, Ringo, Vorman played with all four Beatles. I'm the Greatest featured him, Starr, Harrison, and Lennon, who wrote the song. Was there ever a possibility that those four might form a new version of the Beatles? Vorman also is on the McCartney-written Six O'Clock, and he provided illustrations for the Ringo album booklet. You've also heard Vorman's bass playing on such songs as Harry Nilsson's Without You, Lou Reed's Perfect Day and Satellite of Love, Carly Simon's You're So Vain, and Randy Newman's Short People. Does Vorman ever hear You're So Vain in a supermarket and say, that's me, you know? And he produced this song. In 2009, Vorman released his first solo album, Sideman's Journey, built to Vorman and Friends, and it includes performances by McCartney and Starr. Klaus Vorman has made major contributions to rock history, and he's got keen insights into all of it. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Klaus Vorman. All 
All right, great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you because uh, there's so much to talk to you about as a musician and as an artist. Of course, this new Revolver box is coming out. And I'm wondering when John asked you to do the art for this, did they already have the title Revolver at that point? No, they didn't. They had no idea. They just had the songs in the, in the middle of recording and they asked me to come down to the studio and listen to the tracks that are up to now, but no title up to, in the, in the, at that time. No title. And they're still working on the album, so it wasn't like you just put the needle on Taxman and you heard it in sequence. They just did. They just start saying, "Okay, here's here's tomorrow never knows," and you're like, "Wait, what is this?" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. They had the four track. You know, they had a four track machine, which is you know, in those days you had four tracks, and uh, most of the songs already sounded really fantastic. It was just amazing. And I saw all those machines standing around, which I thought, well, I got so many tape recorders. And then I heard Tomorrow Never Knows, and then I suddenly knew why, because they played all those tape loops and stuff, backwards cymbals and backwards guitar solos and double speed uh, uh, laughing people and birds flying. And I said, oh, shit, that's amazing. And I was just floored. It was just beautiful. Was that the first song they played? You? The first time they played me the tracks, yes. But wait, when you went in there, since the, the album wasn't sequenced, like what song did they play you first? Was it that one? Well, I don't, I can't remember which one they played first, but I knew they played me on most of the songs which were done after then. You know, no, no, I don't think uh, a few of them weren't ready. I think uh, I didn't already. I think wasn't finished, but uh, but most of the other songs were finished, and it was great songs, and it was very sparse recorded and it was very intimate LP and you know, records so it was it sounded fantastic really really good so you you'd been friends with them since uh, Hamburg in like 1960 would they usually have you I mean aside from you working on the art would you they usually have you come down and listen to songs in the studio early or was this unusual for you no when I came first they even took me on the train when they were doing a hard day's night. I was with them on the train, or they asked me to come to the studio, and you know, I was a friend, And uh, but at this time, I was already busy playing myself in a band, and the Manfred Mann band was uh, just uh, the next thing I was going to do. So I uh, didn't have that much contact, because we all were busy. I mean, they were super busy, and I was a little busy too. So we didn't see that much of each other. You, at some point, you lived with George and Ringo, right? Yes, when I came over for the first time to London, uh, George said, come on, you can stay with us, because I didn't know where to go. I, I wanted to go to England, and I just loved all those British people. And I just had to leave Germany because I had to meet, be with those people. And then he said, well, come on, stay with us. And I was not a musician at all. At, at that time, I was a commercial artist. And I went to uh, out to look for a job as a commercial artist, not even thinking of being in a band or playing for those fantastic people. That all came later. So that was so 
nice of him to say, come on, stay with us. So were, were, when you were living with them, was it like the middle of Beatlemania? Like, was it kind of crazy or was it just sort of you, you living with two of your friends? It was super crazy. You, had, you needed two vans filled up with policemen to make a way through to the apartment. You couldn't just go to the apartment. If they, the boys wanted to go to their home, like in that case, it was only Ringo and George. It was impossible. You couldn't get in. He, they couldn't possibly go just down the street and go go in. It was just screaming and, and it was terrible. Of course, it was nice in a certain way, but for them, it was just agony. It was awful. So by the time you come come to the studio, because John has asked you to do this record cover, did you have any idea the kind of stuff they were doing musically at that time? Or was it all like, wow, this is just something completely new in music? Well, one thing I knew that every time they did a, a record, uh, an LP, they called it in those days, uh, something new was happening. They're always looking for new ways of doing things. I knew it was going to be uh, uh, something different from what the last record was, but I did not expect the jump into the future to be that large. Right. And they're asking you to sort of depict that, you know, graphically. So that's a lot of pressure. Well, I tell you what, I don't think they even knew if they wanted to photo or what on the cover. They had no idea. And I, you see, I'm a commercial artist and I do drawings and, and, and uh, illustrations and stuff. But I don't think they necessarily uh, thought of it. They didn't know. They didn't really know. They just thought, oh, Carl Klaus, if you have an idea... Yeah, you got the job. You have this birth of an icon, which is sort of a graphic novel depiction of you going through this process, and they, they use some of it in the book and the new revolver box, but it's very charming. Like, you sort of, they're sort of bringing you down to the studio, and they want to know what you think, and your mind is kind of blown, and you're thinking, oh, what do I do? Uh, did you see the whole book, the graphic novel, or did you just see the bit in the, in the, in, uh, in the box set? Yeah, I've just the part in the box set. I'd love to see the whole graphic novel. I was actually going to ask you if it's still available, because on Amazon, it says it's out of print, but on your website, it looks like it's still there. That's silly. Amazon, what's Amazon got to do with it? It's just silly. Those Amazon people, they never had it. They never had it out of print. I mean, that's just complete rubbish. The book you can only buy from my shop. And you sign it. That's, it's signed, yeah. Buy it signed from my shop. So how much pressure did you feel on this? Did you think, okay, I'm an artist and I can do this? Or did you think, wait a minute, this is, you know, this is for my friend. It's also for the biggest band in the world. And it's for this amazing music that no one's heard yet. Well, you always do those things step by step. In the first place, they ask me to do or come up with an idea. And then I hear the songs. And then I think of, I sit down at home and I normally take a piece of paper and write down what the actual uh, what the actual public the actual people are that are going to buy this record and then I write down uh, oh there's lots of fans that like love me do and uh, I want to hold your hand and all those early records and you have to do something for them. And at the same time, you have to let people know that this is a step into the future. I mean, that wasn't a pop record in, in, to, at that time. There was no pop record doing such a fantastic piece of work, you know. Of course, you had a Dylan or some people 
that did fantastic stuff, but you did not have the band writing great songs like they did. And uh, this is a step into the future. Those things I knew, and then I had to think of what can I do? And of course, I wrecked my brains to, to come up with the idea. It was not... Yes, it's, it is pressure. Yes, definitely is pressure. And when I uh, suddenly said, oh yeah, the thing with the hair, that's really important. Because in those days, people can't even imagine what it was like with all that hair. You know, people, you know, what that was like at, at that time, how important the hair was. And then I just thought, okay, I've got lots of hair. I want to put lots of pictures in there for those early fans in particular that loved the Beatles and I wanted them to see what funny people they are and that they are sometimes very strange and, and then I wanted this whole thing to lead the people to this a little bit surrealistic type illustration I did. So that was the idea. Was the idea from the beginning also to go in black and white? Yes. Not not exactly. No, I would have been open if somebody said, oh, it has to be color. But I said, hey, I want to do a black and white. Said, yeah, great, great. They immediately understood that at the time, because everything was color all over the place, the smiling faces of the band and all this color and flower power and all that <laughs> shit was going on. So I thought, no, 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 black and white. So, and nobody, nobody had any resistance to it. They all were like, yes, of course. Yeah. How did how did you decide that George would be the one the only one who would be facing forward and looking at the the person looking at the record? There was more when I designed it and uh, I had those four faces, and but I did not uh, know how hard it is to do a likeness of George. George was very very difficult. The other ones were easy. I mean, Paul's profile was nice. And I didn't use any photos to do as a guide. I just did it by what I remembered of the boys. And that, uh, of course, at John, he got those very delicate, very uh, delicate nostrils. And he had those almond-shaped eyes. So I, that, I, that was easy. But George was very difficult. Such a pretty boy, just beautiful boy, but he did not have any specific features in his face where you could say, ah, this is George Harrison. So that's why I finally took a magazine and cut out the eyes and the mouth and stuck it on there. And I thought it looked quite interesting. So is he the only one that you cut the eyes out of? I think I did a little bit of eyes on, on Ringo and Paula, but I can't remember. And then you're and you're kind of peeking out of George's hair as well. Yeah, right. That's when, when, John, when John came up and said, Hey, Klaus, you put yourself on there, you cheeky bugger. <laughs> but he didn't. They, they didn't have any complaint about it. No complaints. They just thought it was funny. And then I thought, yeah, Klaus, let him be on there. That's nice. <laughs> so were you nervous when you, you showed it to them? In the, the graphic novel, it shows you like bringing in like this huge piece of paper in which you've done this on and left laying it out. It looks, it looks like it's like in a diner or something. Yeah, right. That's not a diner. That's just the cafeteria of uh, in the EMI studios. Wow. Oh. Uh, and I had this big, uh, just on a sort of, uh, what do you call it, layout paper. You know, like you, where you did do your designs with a magic marker. 
know, like today you say felt pen or something. And it was, that was the first time you had a magic marker. It was out of, it was just like it was out of uh, aluminum and, uh, and it smelled terrible. <laughs> but I thought it was great. And I used that, uh, that pen and did the scribbles on that big piece of paper. Did you know all along that, um, like, the words the Beatles would not be on the cover? I mean, I don't think it was on Rubber Soul either. Did you know that you wouldn't have to sort of worry about that? Exactly. I said, no, no, Ted. No, 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 no. Let's leave the Beatles off. So, so we didn't have a title. You see, when people go through the wrecks, in the, the LP regs in those days, today is that hardly anybody knows what an LP looks like. Oh, no, we're all back on vinyl now, so it's all... I go through LP stacks all the time again. Yeah, good. Uh, no, then you actually... All the bands and everybody always have their name on the top, so when you go through the records, the first thing you see is the name of the band. We said, we don't need that. I, I do think it's interesting that the cover was totally independent of the title of the album, because it really, Revolver isn't depicted anywhere in, in your artwork. It just happens to be that Revolver's the name of this album that has this artwork. Yeah, I tell you, it would have been, uh, would have been uh, kind of in the way if I would have known the title that would have influenced me, and I definitely wouldn't have done that same cover, I think. I don't know. But uh, I'm, I was happy that they didn't have a title. There's a quote from Brian Epstein and... Uh in the book of this box saying that the Beatles had taken such a giant step uh, in their music and that the cover is what provides a bridge for listeners to, you know, go from, from like one place to the other. Like you, like the cover leads people into the album and that, that it's like that important. Yeah, that was a great thing of him to say and I'm very happy about it. And uh, uh, he was very uh, worried about that, that the fans and the, the public wouldn't accept this new music. I mean, uh, but uh, yeah, he feels like... Um, it's great that he says that. I'm, I'm happy about it. It's funny because, like with the Beatles, like like we look back on Revolver, and it's just one of the greatest albums of all time. You know, it's obviously fantastic. And so this idea that of sort of looking back and realizing at the time that there was concern that it would be, you know, accepted is kind of incredible, given how much it's sort of just part of one of the key building blocks of popular music at this point. Yeah, you see. You have to give the boys in particular credit for the fact that they actually asked me to do it, you know, to come up with an idea. And I came up with an idea which makes me so happy and I'm so proud of it. But you must imagine the most famous band in the world and I get the job to do a cover for them. That's just mind-blowing. It's just ridiculous. She <laughs> said So on one hand, you're this artist who's just made this, you know, I, I, I don't usually use this word, but you made this iconic cover for, you know, this great band and this great album by this great band. I mean, the best one they'd done up to that point. Um, and then you're also a musician in the band Manfred Mann. Like, how did you sort of balance, you know, people asking you, hey, do my cover? Like, I know you did Bee Gees first after that and some other ones, but you're also in a band. Like, how did you how did you balance the musician slash artist parts of your, you know, being? 
you see, it was really even hard. It was hard for me to do the revolver cover because I hadn't touched a pen or a pencil or anything because I was into music. I didn't even want to do it in the first place. But then, oh yes, I better get my uh, my my chops together and do some more of uh, graphic, you know, and. After that, everybody thinks I was overloaded with jobs and doing graphics. But in the first place, I wouldn't have any time to do that. I was busy recording and doing tours with the Manfred Mann Band. So uh, nothing really happened in that direction, which everybody thinks, but it didn't. Yeah, I mean, you won you won the Grammy Award for Best Album Cover. And, and yeah, there, you, there are some, again, you did the Bee Gees first. You did a Jackie Lomax record, but it wasn't if there was there's not like a whole lot of them. But at the same time, you were a working musician. But you but you're saying that people weren't even asking you as much as you would think, because I would think that every band on earth would want a Klaus Wormann cover after Revolver. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but you see, that's another thing. You see, of course, uh, the pieces are fantastic and great, and, and they're really on, on the... I, I love that. But if somebody comes up with a shitty record and uh, the, the bad songs, I wouldn't do a cover for them, you know. I, I mean, the, the music has to be something I can sort of uh, associate myself with. Yeah, that's important. Otherwise, I can't do a cover. So did bands that you don't like, that you didn't like, come to you and say, we'd like you to do, you know, our cover, and, you, and you're, you're like, nah, your music sucks? Yes, that happened, yeah. Anyone you want to mention? No! <laughs> you did the you did the cover of the Ringo album Ringo. That's a great cover too. Oh yes, yes, yes. That's see that's unusual because you 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 designed that cover and then you played bass on I think all of the tracks. And the inside you got illustrations. There's a booklet in there where I did for each song I did an illustration um. for. Yeah, okay. that's what so I, that's what it was. All right. So you did the yeah, because you have that wonderful booklet and everything. And then you were the, you, people thought there was a Beatles reunion going on because it was George, it's John, George, Ringo, and you on "I'm the Greatest." Yeah, 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 yeah. And then one track the band is playing, like with Leave on Helm, and he was playing mandolin, and uh, yeah, Rick Dunkel was playing uh, playing the violin. I mean, what else? You know, the whole band was playing. I was playing upright bass. So uh, there's some great people on there, and they all had to be on that cover. <laughs> and you played on Paul's track Six O'Clock as well. So, all, so you're playing bass on a Paul recording, which is you know it, a Paul song. So that's you know that's a lot of trust. Were you like the guy who just got along with all of them, even when they weren't getting along with each other? Oh, yes, I would say so. Um, I wasn't, you see, the band was uh, having having their own chemistry, and that chemistry somehow got a little sour. Right. <laughs> and I was always there for every one of them, you know, because I didn't have, have those... Uh, it's like some people. It's like a marriage being in a band, you know. Right. I mean, so you played on, you know, classic Ono band live piece in Toronto. You're playing bass, and from what I can tell, at least you're playing bass and electric piano on Instant Karma. You're also the bassist on the first classic Ono band album and Imagine, and then you're also uh, on All Things Must Pass, George's album. Was was there ever any thought that? Uh, and and Ringo's the drummer on Plastic Ono band. Was there ever any thought that you know George, John, and Ringo? might carry on with you as a band? No, never. 
the ship Beatles were over and, and that was it, you know, the band was departed and and everybody asking for a reunion was just, uh, you, no, n- not possible. It was just not possible. Well, John clearly wanted to do his own thing. George had gotten a lot of songs and made his point with All Things Must Pass. Both of those albums were produced by Phil Spector. Tell me what those the sessions for, you know, Plastic Ono Band and then All Things Must Pass were like. I mean, Phil, I think, was, uh, I mean, everybody thinks uh, Phil is crazy and whatnot. I didn't have any of that because he was very delicate. He was very fine-feeling, great musician, and had fantastic control over the sound and what was happening in the studio. And he's a funny guy. He got on really well with John and with George, and they all had lots of fun. And uh, apart from this, it uh, was a fantastic work together. You know, he's, he's just an incredible person. And uh, I'm sad that he, the, the way he ended and what he did, but, but it, that had nothing to do with he I witnessed in the studio. I know that people had other experiences. And, you know, he was shooting a pistol, pistol in, in the studio and all those things. But that those sort of things never happened around when I was with him. And that's including, because you were, you were on the rock and roll sessions too, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I got the impression that those sessions were different in terms of whatever Phil Spector was like at that point. Yeah. No, 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 no. The, the, the tracks, uh, that, which they were done very early, those tracks where Phil was producing the record. I didn't play on those. You were on the later ones. Yeah, I played on all the later stuff, which we rehearsed in the Catskills up there, upstage New York. And uh, and uh, then I went in the studio and recorded with uh, all those guys. But there was no pr- producer apart from John himself. Right. Yeah, because I think you'd been on Walls and Bridges before that. And I think maybe the Phil Spuss stuff was before Walls and Bridges and then the other stuff was after. And also to go back to Plastic Ono Band and All Things Must Pass. I mean, there's such a contrast in that Plastic Ono Band is this very spare, sparse, you know, record where it's just, you know, it's just you, Ringo and John for a lot of it. And then All Things Must Pass has about 50 musicians on every track. So they're very different approaches, even though it's the same producer and they're also both with a Beatle. Was was the vibe totally different for those or was it still comfortable? Very different. Very, very different, which is really, really nice because uh, you see with John, it was very, uh, I love that record. I mean, the Plastic Owner Band LP is just, my, it's my favorite record because it's so simple and he just wrote those songs real, really quick. And they were straight into the studio, down into the tape, and, and it was incredible. And I love that big box set they did, where you can actually hear the way Ringo is saying something, I am saying something, John is saying something, or Yoko is saying something, and that is such a great feeling on that box set. And the whole LP, it was just, it's my favorite LP, it's my, I really must admit. I mean, George thing is in a completely different direction. You couldn't really compare the two or ask somebody to say, which is your favorite LP? Because George was an atmosphere that was so close, even though there's so so much stuff on there later on, but as a band, it wasn't that much. And it was mostly four or five people, uh, uh, most, most of it. Now, apart 
restaurant and then when Phil wanted like, some more rhythm guitars, then you got more people in and I was playing some rhythm guitar and other people were playing rhythm guitar. But apart from this, it was very simple. What happened was that George went in and did lots of overdubs, you know, and those overdubs, uh, to me, not that it's spoiled, it's still great, but those early tracks, and I never heard them, not even on those box set they put out of uh, or, uh, All Things Must Pass. You don't, never heard, you never heard those early rough mixes that filled it. And there's, for example, I'm just thinking of uh, Wawa. It was just incredible. That first mix was the best thing, but uh, later on, George put too much stuff on there, and he agrees to it. He, he said that himself that uh, I overproduced it. Yeah, because you don't think of All Things Must Pass as being an intimate record, but your experience of it was an intimate record because you were you were making you were recording stuff live with a, a tight band and it wasn't all of this other stuff going on at the time. Yeah, you see, it's a complete uh, swap when you think of John who was very straight and very be just us and the studio and but then suddenly you you build with George and his it's much complete completely different attitude it was nice he put up his joysticks and and the little altar in front of the studio and everybody was really calm and he took his time and and, and john was always a tendency to be a little hectic and wanted to get quick quickly done and george was the opposite he wanted to really take his time and, and to work work out his little guitar solos incredible little lines and stuff really beautiful so you think all the overdubbing was driven by George as opposed to Phil Spector then? Yes, definitely. I even remember one thing when, when Phil came in. I think he had a broken arm at the time and he was pretty drunk and uh, he started making jokes and stuff and it was somehow you could feel he didn't like this all this overdubbing and doing this for him. And I think he, I think he just left. Mm. And then you had the album Imagine after that, um, which has which has more strings and is a little more lush, although not as you know produced as All Things Must Pass. Was was the vibe on that a good one as well? Yeah, that was good. That was good. It was a, a little more getting into detail and uh, thinking of uh, what's going to happen, but uh, still, it was only a, a, a the most for four people and, and the, the room didn't wouldn't have taken more i mean suddenly we were in a small little room that was a bedroom that was john's bedroom you know so it was really tight it was not a big studio like it was for all things must pass when john first played you imagine did you think oh this is a song that's going to be considered a classic for decades to come definitely definitely i mean that was apparent that was just uh, was just an important uh, song for me and for everybody who heard it right from the start it was really really was just it had to be a big big record definitely did you think how do you sleep was too mean no 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 that's fine you see uh, i always i just listened to do it today it's really john at that particular time where he was pissed off <laughs> <laughs> he likes to. He, that's how direct he is. Even the next day, he felt different. He might even have felt sorry about writing a song like that. But uh, you know, there it is. Ready, put it on the record. 
That's it. And that's fantastic. That's how John is. Right. I think I'd seen a story somewhere where Ringo was like, come on, John, this is too much. <laughs> George seemed very happy to play on it, though. You've, you've played on so many songs that I don't think people realize. I mean, you're the bassist on You're So Vain. You're on, you know, Lou Reed's album Transformer, like Perfect Day and Satellite of Love. You're playing on Nielsen Schmilson and Without You. Uh, you're playing on Short People, Randy Newman. When you're out in public, do you hear a song and just think to yourself, People have no idea that I'm on this right now. <laughs> funny. Sometimes even I remember I did that when I was in the in the, in the car with somebody, and suddenly one of those songs comes. Up. Hey, that's me playing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I know, don't not often do that, you know. But let's say I'm not in a supermarket and you suddenly imagine, hey, come on, all you people, listen, that's me playing. No, but it's kind of a fun thing for you, I would imagine. Like, I mean, back in the day when people used to do this, I'd ride the train into work and, and I'd see people reading my articles in the Chicago Tribune and I'd just sort of think, I wrote that, I wrote what you're reading. But, you know, you're hearing something like You're So Vain, which is, still gets played all the time, and you're like, yep, that's me. <laughs> That's great. Any stories about how you ended up doing a, a Dr. Robert foot pedal art? Because that's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They asked me to do that. And it's a thought of Dr. Robert. And of course, the songs are about that. And all those things came up. And I thought I'd do that where he's putting them a nice, uh, uh, what do you call it, in the LSD. <laughs> pill in the, in the tea, yeah. Well, you got the line drawing, and he's got the hair kind of trailing off to the side of the, the foot pedal, so it's pretty cool. All right. Well, thank you so much. It was wonderful to talk to you. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Bye-bye. That's it for episode 56 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Klaus Warman for sharing his memories about Revolver, the Beatles, and his indelible work drawing and making music. The super deluxe box of the Beatles' Revolver, which showcases Warman's artwork, is out October 28th. You also can order a hand-signed copy of Birth of an Icon, his graphic novel about the creation of the Revolver cover, directly from his website, shopping.vorman.com. Vorman is V-O-O-R-M-A-N-N. Also look for his solo album, A Sideman's Journey. Thanks to Lou Carlozo for recording this episode in his Karma Production studio. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who excels here, there, and everywhere. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks.